As usual, when we, at the beginning of the class, I want to try to get us flowing again where we are in the book because of the fact that, as I said, Paul kind of builds on everything in the book of Philippians. He kind of just uh, keeps moving into the next subject, but it's always tied together from what he originally started talking about. And so as you begin through studying the book of Philippians, as we've already talked about, it's a, a letter that's unusual from the rest of the epistles in the fact that there's really no great problem that he's dealing with. There's really no great doctrinal issue he wants to explain. It's just really like a love letter to a church that he loves very much. And though he makes sure in love that he tells them some things they need to do, uh, but this is different from any other epistle that you'll study in, in our New Testament. But the letter begins, of course, with uh, some customary greetings. And then uh, after making those greetings, he points out really um, the whole point of the letter. And that is the fact that the church at Philippi was somebody who was his partner in the spreading of the gospel. Uh, they sent time and time again unto his necessity when he was preaching at other places even. Uh, they were somebody who supported Paul in a money way. And uh, even now, while he is writing this epistle in Rome, one of the reasons why he's writing it is because of the fact that they had sent him some money uh, there in the city of Rome and, and in fact, also sent a man to uh, help him, uh, to serve him while he's in prison. And just out of curiosity, because I've said his name several times, what's his name, what is it? Epaphroditus. I'm so glad you knew that. Uh, I just like the way that sounds, Epaphroditus. But anyway... He sent, they even sent Epaphroditus to help him, and he's probably the one that brought him, probably brought the money and also brought a letter from the church at Philippi. And then um, after talking about the fact that they uh, were par partners, uh, Paul, in a very loving and emotional way, uh, talks about how if he could be anywhere else on the face of the earth, he would want to be with the people at Philippi. He loved that congregation, and he wished he was there with them. And then he, after talking to them about different things, he is praying uh, for them, uh, different areas he wants them to grow, and he's praying that they grow in these areas. He, he answers a question that uh, they perhaps sent through Epaphroditus. They want to know how he was doing. How was he uh, handling prison life, if you will? And, of course, in chapter 1, he says, I want you to understand this. Make sure you know this, that regardless of what's happening to me, and I'm paraphrasing, of course, the gospel is being preached. And that's all he cared about was the gospel is being preached. Uh, Satan meant these bonds to stop him, but the gospel is being preached. And, and because of that, others are being encouraged to preach the gospel. And that leads him into a discussion of the fact that there in the city of Rome, there were preachers who were preaching the gospel, but because of some reason, either envy or pride or jealousy, whatever the issue may have been, they were saying some bad things about Paul. They were trying to tear him down for whatever the reason may be. They were trying to cause some division uh, with the brethren there in Rome because I'm sure there were those who highly respected Paul and loved Paul and, and they were trying to do what they could to cause a, uh, some trouble. And Paul handled it this way. He says, as long as they keep preaching the gospel, that's all that matters. They can talk bad about me all they want. As long as the gospel's being preached... Uh, that's what I want done. And um, he says, in fact, I'm going to rejoice in the fact, and I'm going to rejoice because the gospel is being preached. And that kind of makes him think about the fact that 
Something else that makes him rejoice is the fact that he is now in a situation in his life where because he's on trial before Caesar while he's a prisoner in Rome, that he either is going to be set free and continue to live or he is going to be put to death. And, of course, he makes the, the very famous statement, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And he's stuck in the middle. He doesn't know what to do. He, he says, I'm a straight betwixt the two, whether it's better for me to go ahead and die and go to heaven or to stay here on earth, which is more needful for you. And he seems to struggle with that just a little bit. And he finally comes to the conclusion that he believes he's going to be allowed to live because he thinks the church at Philippi needs him so greatly. And so uh, he makes that decision. And, of course, I'm speeding right through the, the first chapter. And he makes that decision. And then it leads him to think about the church at Philippi again. And he ta- tells them the thing that is most important to him when it comes to that church. The thing he wants most for that church. And it's this. What is it? Be unified. Have unity. And as I said, Paul builds on things. He's, he he, he takes the, his love for the church at Philippi, he talks about the spreading of the gospel, and then he brings up these men that were causing division, and perhaps that makes him think about the fact, well, I want this to never, ever happen in the church at Philippi. And so he begins chapter 2 talking about all the different things that show their oneness together, shows how that they are all of the same thing. And to paraphrase the points basically say you're all one under God, you're one, un, one under Jesus Christ, and you're one under the Holy Spirit. Then you get to verse 5, and he says, Let this mind be in you which is also in Christ Jesus. And talks about the fact that Jesus um, did away with all selfishness, did away with all pride, humbled himself and became as a man. And the point he's driving home there is not just give us a a theological statement of what Jesus Christ did in leaving heaven. He's making the point that if you want to have unity in the church, you've got to be the same way. You've got to get rid of that selfish pride. You've got to get rid of that jealousy. You've got to get rid of that um, wanting to have your own way. In fact, um, before he makes the statement in verse 5, in verse 4 he says that every one of us shouldn't think on our own things, but should be thinking on the things of others. In other words, put others' interests first. And then... The last time we had class, we started getting toward um, the middle of chapter 2, and we talked about how that um, after, God is, uh, after God had glorified Christ in verses 10 and 11, uh, in verses 9 uh, through 11, that uh, we, Paul really drives his point home what this whole discussion was all about in verse 14, where he says, Do all things without murmuring and disputing. And that's really what he really wanted the church at Philippi to understand. He began this discussion about unity uh, in verse 28 of chapter 1, and he finally gets to the, the, the point that he really wanted them to understand that there's no business for murmurings and arguing, arguing in the church. And as I said, he could have just come out and said that, but that wouldn't have the impact of everything else he said thus far. He brought up how they were one. He brought up how they should be unselfish. He brings up how that they need to have the same mind as Jesus Christ. And if they would have the same mind as Jesus Christ, then they too would be glorified is the implication. And it all boils down to this. You need to do all things without murmuring and disputing. And then he explains, as we talked about last week, how that uh, verse, in verses 15 through 16 that the church 
needs to be a place that's unified because the church is the torchbearer of the gospel. And we need to be people that uh, they can't point a finger at the church and say bad things about it because of the division. And they, we need to be harmless like doves. We need to be people who are promoting peace, not harmfulness to other people. And that's the way that we get people to become part of the, uh, the church. And we finished uh, last time we had class, verse 16, we talked about how that holding forth the word of life, that I may rejoice in the day of God, that I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. And so that's where we stopped, and I, we didn't really get into verse 16, and we'll spend some more time talking about that now. But before we move on, I did quite a big synopsis there. And didn't know if there was any questions, comments, or anything anybody like to add or point out things I missed or any of that kind of stuff. Well, let's look at verse 16 as we continue our little journey here through the book of Philippians. As I, we pointed out last time, holding forth the word of life is, of course, holding forth the gospel. And his point is that, you know, the church can't be a church that is divided. There can't be murmurings and disputings and fighting in the church um, because of the fact that the church has the most glorious purpose that the world has ever seen, and that is spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the word of life. It's what gives real life. And so he's saying, you know, if you love the church, you need to love the gospel, and if you love the gospel, then you're going to make sure you don't do anything that will cause harm to the church. And then he says, after I mean, we've spent some time talking about that last time, but then we didn't get to this part. He says, I want you to do this. I want you to be unified. Remember, that's just the whole thing, the whole discussion here. I want you to stay unified, have peace and harmony in the church. The reason being that I may rejoice in the day of the Lord. Now, what would be rejoicing in the day of the Lord? All right, when Jesus comes back, he wants a reason to rejoice. And what would and so the implication is what would make him rejoice when Christ came back? All right, see everybody go to heaven, but specifically in this case, in the context, something specific he wants to make that will make him rejoice when the Lord returns. But here's here's what I'll make sure you understand that. If he's going to be back with the church he loves so much when Christ returns, what does that mean has happened to the church at Philippi? They stayed strong together. They didn't break up. They didn't become disunified. And that's important to understand that's what he's talking about because what he says in the very next phrase, he says that I may rejoice in the day of, the, of Christ that I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. Now, he's kind of digging the church at Philippi here just a little bit. He's kind of poking them in the ribs just a little bit. He's saying... I'll rejoice when Christ comes back because I know that the church at Philippi stayed unified because if it doesn't, be just like a runner running across the finish line and the judge says, I'm sorry, I know you finished first, but you're disqualified because you didn't have one of your shoes tied. Or a boss coming to you in a manufacturing plant is saying, man, what a beautiful work you did here on this machine you built, but here, here's the spring you left out. What a waste of time. Spend all that time building that machine, but it's worthless because you left this spring out. Or 
all that time training to run a race and you, and you work so hard, you pace just right and you made it to the finish line and you get to the finish line and the judge says, I'm sorry, you're not eligible to win this race. And what is Paul making an allusion to in what we're talking about using those two illustrations? Absolutely. And that's what I'm saying. He's kind of sticking it to him just a little bit, punch him in the ribs just a little bit and saying, listen, if you don't do this, then really what's the point of this letter I'm writing? If you don't do this, what's the point of all the work I did with you at, at, at Philippi? If you don't stick together and you don't be unified, if you don't make this dream of mine comes true, dream of mine come true, then it's really just been a waste of time on my part. That's basically what he's saying. I've done it all in vain. Uh, the word vain, of course, we've talked about before, means empty. It's just emptiness. It's like nothing ever happened. If you don't stay unified, if you don't be the church that God wants you to be for the purpose of spreading the gospel, Paul says, I was just spinning my wheels with you all this time. I don't care how much we partnered in the gospel. I don't care how much you, we love each other. I don't care what you've done for me. Uh, you've kind of defeated the entire reason for all this existence. Yes, Karen? Absolutely. Um, Paul made that beautiful statement about Jesus Christ and how he humbled himself and left heaven to become man and became obedient, obedient even unto the death of the cross. It was all just a waste. Now, I hope that impresses upon us how Paul looked at the unity of the church, but more importantly, how God looks at the unity of the church. As we talked about last time, the word for murmuring here in verse 14 is the exact same word in the Greek that's in the Hebrew that was used for talking about the Israelites as they wandered through the wilderness. In other words, murmurings and, and disputings or arguings and causing discord in the church is, is something that God doesn't look at too favorably. In fact, Paul says in this text, if this was what happened with the church at Philippi, then it's just like he just wasted his time with them. Because they didn't get the point of what it means to be a Christian. They didn't get the point of what it means to be the church. They didn't get the point of what it means to spread the gospel or hold forth the word of life. And so you can see how important this is to Paul. Any questions or comments? Okay. But the seriousness of, of, of disunity is something Paul was wanting us to impress upon them and impress upon us. In fact, if you think about it, folks... The entire letter has led up to this point. Because remember, he's building on everything. And so the whole letter has come to this point right here. And he says, if, if you don't stay unified, it's all been a waste of time. So if I was reading this letter and I was one of the members at Philippi, uh, I would feel a little bit bad right here. I would say, oh man, we've got to make sure that we do this because... Paul's in prison, and, and he's gonna maybe will be put to death, and he loves us so much, and we've done so much to help him. Oh, we've got to stay together. We've got to be unified. But then in verse 17, um, he says something unusual, but something that makes a lot of sense if you think about it. He says, Yea, and if I be offered upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I joy and rejoice with you all. Now, as I said, Paul builds on things, and he just got through saying it would all be a waste of time if y'all didn't do what you needed to do. 
But then he understands, because one of the themes of this discussion he's having is, he understands that there's going to be some sacrifice involved on the part of the Philippians. You know, to have real unity, sometimes people have to sacrifice. Uh, We don't get our own way sometimes. Sometimes um, we think certain things should be another way, and, and maybe this might be something minor, so what color that chair should be or not. I'm just being silly, but there's been stranger things that have divided up churches before. And so we might say, well, I really wish it was one way, but for the sake of the church and for the unity of the church, I'm not going to get, make sure I press my way. And that involves some sacrifice. And so Paul's making a play on words on here that he understands and appreciates the fact that the Philippians might have to be involved in a sacrifice here, some sacrificing to be involved. But with that thought in mind, he says something pretty amazing. He says, yes, and if I be offered upon the sacrifice. Now, in the Greek here is the idea of a drink offering. And so what he's making a word picture of is that the sacrifice that's being made is the Philippian church. They're going to be willing to make sacrifices for this to happen. And then Paul comes along and he says, I am the drink offering that gets poured upon that sacrifice. And really the point is, he's making, uh, he's saying we're mutually sacrificing together. But as he says that, he wants them to think about the fact. What might happen to Paul right now? If the verdict comes against him, what's going to happen to him? He's going he's to sacrifice his life, isn't he, Grady? And what does he tell the church at Philippi? Can you not sacrifice some of your own unselfish, your own selfishness, some of your own pride, some of your own getting your own way? If I'm willing to do everything that I've done, won't you sacrifice with me? And so he's in a word picture, he's painting here of two sacrifices coming together. And a drink sacrifice, there's some discussion whether or not the Jews, how they actually did this, but we know that pagans during this time period where Paul lived, uh, that the pagan priests would take uh, a drink and as the fa- sacrifice was being uh, sacrificed, he would pour the drink over top of the, the animal that's being sacrificed and it became part of the sacrifice too. And so he's combining him and the church at Philippi together and say, they're saying, let us mutually sacrifice together. And of course, Paul's sacrifice is going to be uh, greater. And so he combines all this together and says, Yea, and if I be offered upon the sacrifice and service of your faith. Remember, that's who he's talking about. It's them, the sacrifice and service of your faith. If we join together in our sacrifice, I joy and rejoice with you all. Yes, great. Absolutely. In fact, that's why he says in the next verse, verse 18, For the same cause also do ye joy and rejoice with me. This should be reciprocal. As I'm lovingly giving my life for Jesus Christ and will rejoice in that, you rejoice in whatever sacrifice you need to bear, whatever cross you need to carry for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the church, for the sake of bringing the lost to Jesus Christ. And so you read that verse and you think, oh, there's not a whole lot going on there. Oh, man, there's all kinds of stuff going on there. He's saying a mouthful there. And so he closes off this little section of, or at least his, his, his thought about how important it is for them to be unified 
uh, with this idea that if we do it the right way, if we're both willing to sacrifice, then the result will be we'll just all get to rejoice. And a happy church is a rejoicing church. Yes, Karen? Absolutely. He builds on, he just constantly builds on stuff. And of course, Jesus Christ committed the ultimate sacrifice. He was obedient uh, unto death, even to the death of the cross. And um, he did not get his own way at all. That's the whole point. When he left heaven, he became totally dependent upon God, lost his independence as God. And that's, that's unselfishness and, and, and uh, humbleness to the ultimate degree. And so that all ties in with the same thought of sacrifice. Very good. Any other thing? Anybody like that? All right. Well, as I said, Paul keeps building on things he writes. So we get to verse 19, and we see this word, but. Okay. He says, But I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timotheus shortly unto you, that I also may be of good comfort when I know your state. Now, the first question I always ask myself when I'm studying God's Word, and I come to a word like but, I have to ask why that but's there. All right. All right. Y'all are, hit, y'all are hitting at the right place here. He had just stated in verse 17 and 18 that there's sacrifices going to be made by the church at Philippi, and Paul himself may be making the ultimate sacrifice. And... If you're getting this letter and you're reading these words and you hear those words and you understand them really the way you're supposed to understand them and you're a member of the church at Philippi and Paul's talking about his sacrifice and he's talking about your sacrifice, is that not going to make you just a little melancholy maybe? Maybe just a little bit, oh man, I gotta, I've got to, I gotta sacrifice because my beloved brother whom we love so much, is, is he's going to maybe put to death, be put to death. And, oh, man, that's, this is some bad news. He's reminded me again of the fact that he might be put to death. And so the idea in verse 19 is Paul's going to try to comfort him now. He's going to try to give them some, something to hang on to. And he's going to tell them that he's going to send them two men. Two men are going to go back to Philippi and going to comfort you and let you know how I'm doing and let know, and they're going to let me know how you're doing with all this. One he's going to send after he knows the verdict, and that's Timothy, and we're going to look at him right now. We're going to discover that Timothy's waiting in the wings, and as soon as the verdict comes down from Caesar, whether it be life or death, he's going to immediately go to Philippi, and he's going to let them know, it's life, Paul lives, or he's going to share them the news that Paul is dead, or we're going to be put to death. Yes, great. He's like he's sending his, his, sending his clone, isn't he? But anyway, he's going to send two people with him. He's going to send Timothy to him. As soon as the verdict is known, he's going to send Timothy and let the church at Philippi know whether it's, or, whether it's life or death. Now, keep in mind, they couldn't send a telegram. They couldn't make a phone call. That somebody would have to deliver this news personally or a letter would have to be carried by somebody. And Timothy's the one that's going to be taking the message to them. But he's also going to send someone immediately back to the church at Philippi to give them comfort now and give them some real-time news about how things are going in the city of Rome. And the second guy that's going to be sent is who? Epaphroditus. Okay. So Paul is going to be sending both of these men, one after the verdict and one's going to be sent now. But uh, we're only going to have time to look at one of those men tonight, and that's uh, Timothy. 
which in the King James here is translated Timotheus, which just kind of rolls off the mouth a little bit, that Timotheus. Um, but he says, But I trust in the Lord Jesus Christ to send Timotheus shortly unto you, that I also may be of good comfort when I know your state. So this is reciprocal. First of all, he's going to find out how the church at Philippi is doing. And um, so he's, he's tying in to what he had said earlier that um, in verse 12, he says, Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. He says, Timothy's coming. He's going to give me a report whether or not you're doing that. So this is something that's going to make them think also. Um, and he says, that I, may, uh, that I also may be of good comfort when I know your state. Now, once again, what's, what's the word for state here? It's not, not knowing whether or not they're in North Carolina or South Carolina. It's talking about their condition. I want to know what your condition is. And as Grady says, here's the reason why I'm sending Timothy. For I have no man like-minded who will naturally care for your state. And, as, and I like the word Grady used there. Here's a man that's really a clone of, of Paul. Now, let's spend just a few minutes. I know we're running out of time, but let's spend just a few minutes and, and just make sure we know who Timothy is. Who is Timothy if we're talking about him? What can you tell me about Timothy? I know you know some things about Timothy. He had a mother and grandmother, but most people do. <laughs> yep. Or Eunice and Lois, I think the correct Greek pronunciation is Eunice, or the Hebrew pronunciation, however you want to say it. His father was Greek. Um, where did Paul come in contact with Timothy the first time? Uh, <laughs> it was in the city of Lystra on his first missionary journey. And evidently, there's nothing recorded there about that, but evidently he was able to convert the mother and the grandmother and Timothy. And I um, don't know if the father was ever converted. We kind of doubt that he was because he's never mentioned by name. And when he came back on his second missionary journey, that's when he asked Timothy to come start traveling with him on his missionary journey. It's interesting that they just had the dispute with Barnabas over John Mark. John Mark decided he was going to go back. And they had a big fight about taking him with them again. And Barnabas and Paul went separate ways. And Paul invited Timothy to start traveling with him. And um, as I said, his mother was Eunice or Eunice. Uh, His father was Greek. His grandmother was Lois. They were all um, very versed in the scriptures. In fact, a lot of what Paul says in the first two epistles to Timothy is um, 1st 2nd Timothy uh, it's about the scriptures, and he talks about him being taught uh, from a young child the scriptures from, by his mother and his grandmother. And so a very scripturally minded family. But here's something that very few people know, because you'd have to really catch it in your reading. But how many people realize that Timothy spent time in prison? Very few people know that, but he actually spent time in prison. And here's how we know. Because of what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 23. Somebody look that up and read it for me. I don't think it meant he was released from a pro football team. He was released from prison. Now, we don't know the circumstances of this prison, 
Don't know why he was in prison, but he was in prison. And the reason why I bring it up, because it makes me think about what Grady said about him being Paul's clone. Just like Paul, guess who spent some time in prison? So did Timothy. And I imagine it's because he was preaching the gospel. All right. So anything else anybody like to say about Mr. Timotheus here? Whereas his real close friends called him, they called him Timmy. He says, but I trust in the Lord uh, Jesus to send you Timotheus shortly unto you that I also may be of good comfort when I know your state. For I have no man like-minded who would naturally care for your state. In other words, this is a man that, as Grady says, he's my clone. He loves you as much as I love you. He wants to take care of you as much as I want to take care of you. And then he says something that will make us think it will also be a tying in together again like Paul does such a wonderful job of as he builds and builds on the things he is saying, because in verse 21, he says, for all seek their own, not the things which are Jesus Christ. Whoa, where'd that come from? And what is he talking about? He mentions Timothy, and he says, he's my clone, to use the greatest term again, because I like it. And he's gonna t- he naturally cares for you just like I care for you. And then he throws in this. There's people who seek their own way, their own selfishness, their own ways of doing things, and not the things of Jesus Christ. What made him say that? All right? I don't think so much in the church at Philippi, but where Paul is. In other words, he's making, he's, he's wanting us to flip back a few pages, if you will, and go back and look at chapter 1 again, where it says in verse 15, some indeed preach Christ even of envy and strife, and some also of goodwill. The one, the one preach Christ of contention, not sincerely supposing to add affliction to my bonds, but the other love. He's probably talking about the church at Rome and how that he wished he could send other people from Rome. Because I imagine Paul probably wanted Timothy to stay there with him, whether the news was good or bad. That's the last person he'd want away from him. This is his right-hand man. Keep in mind, the apostle Paul wasn't married. Keep in mind that there's never, ever mention of his family except for what it was prior to him becoming a Christian. In a lot of ways, Paul had nobody but the church. In a lot of ways, Timothy was probably his closest friend that he had in the entire world. And so you see a little struggle here. He's making this, this comment that, you know, I wish there were some other people I could send to you. But he naturally cares for you, whereas the people, other people around me right here, they don't care for you. They're more interested in their own agenda. And their own agenda is not Jesus Christ's agenda. And so, the, the, see what he's done here again, though. This is why I love this letter and love the way Paul thinks. He sent a Timothy to them to find out what kind of condition the church is there so he can give them a report. He can come back and give Paul a report later on or write Paul and give him a report later on. And he's having to send Timothy because there's division in the church at Rome. And he's almost saying, now, wait a minute. You don't want to be guilty of that too. He's making them think about that again. He's just, the way he does stuff just amazes me. When you first read it, you think, well, he's just saying he's going to send Timothy. Oh, he's sending Timothy, all right, but he's working it around to get back to what the subject of the entire letter has been so far. That's why I just love uh, Paul in this particular book and how he, he, as he does in other epistles, just keeps building and building. And so 
um, after saying that all seek their own, he says, but ye know the proof of him that as, as a son with the father, he hath served me in the gospel. Him, therefore, I hope to send presently, so soon as I shall see how it will go with me. Now, we're running out of time, so I'm going to have to sum this up real quick. But he's saying, you know that Timothy's not the type of person that I just talked about that seeks after his own thing. Because as Grace says, this person, and Paul's using the words in another way here, he, he, he is my clone. In fact, he's my son in the faith. As the son does so, I mean, as the father does, so does the son is the point that he's making. And so you've got confidence uh, in the fact that when he comes to you, he's going to be like me coming to you. But then in verse 23, he says, I want to send him to you as quick as I can, but I won't send him to him, send you to him until, as the text says, how, how it will go with me. What does he mean when he says how it will go with me? Y'all have all said it, and you're all correct. Find out what the verdict is. He says, as soon as I find out what the verdict is, I'm going to send him and let you know. And, but then in verse 24, he's basically saying, if it's the Lord's will, that the verdict is that I'm going to live, in verse 24, but I trust in the Lord that I also myself shall come shortly. And he's putting the confidence in them once again that matter of the verdict, I'm going to send Timothy. But if the Lord wills, my plan is to bring myself to see you someday, sometime shortly. And that's a good stopping place. And next time we'll talk about Epaphroditus. I just like it when you say it, Betty. <laughs> but, we, but the other classes will be coming in. Thank you so much for your comments and your attention.